Nehemiah chapter 7, this evening in our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave at them and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please receive that one as a gift. We come to chapter 7 and the wall now has been built and we head into a phase really as it relates to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, real, is actually going to, uh, though the, uh, they don't you know, call the second half of the book of Nehemiah Ezra B., but Nehemiah really does take a second, uh, kind of a second seat to Ezra the rest of the, rest of the way through the book. Ezra's going to be the dominant kind of personalities we're going to see in a moment or the focus of, of God's work in, among uh, his people. But Nehemiah, remember, he came. He'd been sent by King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. That's been accomplished now. And so Nehemiah now begins a period of something like 12, 14 years as a governor over the region of Judah, Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So he kind of takes his construction hat off, and uh, he's kind of got a little bit of a white-collar government job, so to speak, of overseeing uh, the region. And so this is where, uh, where he is, and we see him begin to get things organized now beyond the wall. So the wall is done, but there's a lot more work to do. Nehemiah clearly possesses uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit that is referred to in the New Testament of the gift of leading. Not everyone has that gift. Not everyone has that calling. He clearly does. So he gets done with one thing, and then now he gets put in a completely different capacity, and that gifting doesn't just uh, go dormant on him. Uh, A gifting in our life is going to have to find expression wherever God puts us. And so now what has happened is the walls have been built. Now the city needs to be put in proper order and uh, things to get properly organized. And so that's what he does. By the way, related to the gift of leading, if you're wondering if you have it, uh, somebody who has that gift has two main characteristics. Number one, they lead. And then number two, um, people have a sense of God's calling upon their life in that way, and thus they follow them. So they will turn around and discover that people, uh, God has touched people's heart, even as they did related to King Saul. He had, a, uh, he had a terrible end, but God gave him great every advantage to be a great king in the history of the nation of Israel. And, uh, and the Bible says that God touched people's hearts to follow him, but he squandered away Uh, that calling and that gifting. And so we're told, then it was when the wall was built that I and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. So this was his first kind of responsibility, everything, that wall's in place. So he put gatekeepers in their place. Gatekeepers weren't kind of like modern-day ushers where they opened up. These are big old gates that open up every so often in the walls in order to allow access into the city for people to get out of the city. And so gatekeepers uh, at the gates, it wasn't so much of kind of like a politeness issue to open up the gate. It was really a security issue. So he's establishing now uh, security uh, for the city. It's interesting, too, on, on kind of a ministry note, and we're all involved in ministry, 
is that Nehemiah continues to put kind of a security system in place to uh, supplement the walls themselves. And so here he's had this great victory that God has given him. He's led the people in the building of the walls, but he recognizes that the potential attack of his enemies uh, wasn't going to end with the building of the wall. His enemies were still his enemies. They were still going to try and take the Jews out if they could ever possibly do that. And so he recognized that. And the point really for our service to the Lord is to be as vigilant in terms of warfare for us, a spiritual warfare, after a great victory as before a great victory. It's, it's, very, it's comparatively easy to stay on our toes related to spiritual warfare when we're right in the thick of it. We know we're engaged in a battle. Our enemies are right out in front of us or our enemy who is the devil for us. And so it's uh, relatively simple to stay focused in that kind of environment. The problem is, is after God gives a great victory, then so often we think that, uh, uh, the, uh, that the devil accepts his defeat once and for all and forever. But we're told in terms of his attack against Jesus that even when Jesus was, the devil tempted Jesus following his water baptism to begin his public ministry, and he was out in the Judean wilderness and the devil came to him and tempted him that when Jesus uh, countered that attack by the enemy with the word of God and the devil has no answer for the word of God if we respond with that, the sword of the spirit, that the devil went off and looking for a more opportune time. He wasn't done with attacking Jesus. And of course, if he's going to attack Jesus, we must look like a little plump quail on a dish or something apart from the Holy Spirit. He's going to attack us too. And so nobody should ever be surprised. God uses you in some, you know, massive way. You lead somebody to Christ or you even share the gospel with somebody. And it's a good thing, you know, God was really at work in that deal. Or God has you do a certain thing and you walk away and you're walking away six inches off of the ground. And, and that's a good time to realize the guy's gonna, the devil's probably gonna try and sideswipe me here on this thing, and so I need to remain vigilant. And so he put the gatekeepers in place. He also put singers in place. And uh, around the area of the temple, he wanted people coming to, the, to worship at the temple to hear uh, worship music. So they couldn't put a CD on in those days. You had to do it live. It was great for the unions, kept people working. But uh, so these, he wanted the singers, wanted that to happen, put that in place. And he also had the Levites appointed, and they were put in their place to, as a part of probably the security of the city as well. Remember, the Levites, as opposed to the priests of Levites, were the kind of the deacons of the Old Testament. Whatever kind of physical need was required, then they would step up and do that. And so at that time, he gave the charge of Jerusalem, kind of making him the... Uh, mayor over Jerusalem or the head uh, over Jerusalem, really co-mayors over the city. I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother uh, Hanani. Remember, uh, Hanani was Nehemiah's brother. He's the one that came to uh, Shushan the citadel all the way back in the beginning of the book to inform Nehemiah after Nehemiah asked him about the condition of the city, and he said, it's a mess. And so how, how would he even know that just in a relatively short period of months that the whole city would be turned around in this way? So he put his, his brother in charge of the city. And uh, Hanan, so you had Hanani and Hanani, ah, boy, don't, oh, 
If you were having dental work, you wouldn't know, they wouldn't know who you were talking to. And so uh, he was also the leader uh, of the citadel. They, these two were put in, in uh, co-mayors over the city, for he, speaking of his brother once again, was a faithful man and feared God more than m- many. So Nehemiah isn't putting his brother into this position because he says, now, okay, now I've got a high government position and we're going to engage in nepotism and I'm going to get every one of my family members plugged in. He didn't end up doing that at all. But... Here is the qualification that he was looking for. He was looking for a faithful man and someone who feared God. And when he saw that the, the best qualified happened to also uh, be blood, then he wasn't going to let that get in the way of putting the best man and the best men in that position. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened up until the sun is hot. So it, it noon. Normally you would open up the gates of a city in the ancient world as soon as the sun started to come up. Gates, again, were for security, so you wouldn't be invaded in the night by your enemies. As soon as the light came out, the element of a surprise attack was largely gone. So you would open up the city, the gates of the city at, at sunrise. He says, don't do it until the sun is hot. Again, being about midday, so he's really uh, narrowing the, the hours that the gates are going to be open. Again, as we're going to see in a moment, because the po- Jewish population of the city of Jerusalem is very, very small. It really couldn't take on a, a frontal assault by their enemies and hold on to the city, even at that point, if it occurred. And so no surprise attacks. We don't want any of that. Wait till the sun is out. Everything's well lit. We know what's going on. And then, uh, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at each his, uh, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. And so he sets up kind of a militia system where the guys are doing the gates. Don't open it up. Just have those gates open from like noon to four. That's it because of where we are right now. And then he sets up a uh, militia, so to speak, a citizen army. Uh, Israel has that today. Switzerland has that today. Uh, so in other, th- those are the two that I know of where everybody's armed. They're all in the military. They're ready to go at a drop of a hat in terms of an invasion. So here they are. Everyone is, has a responsibility for the defense of the city. And he put uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those that lived the closest to a particular gate, they were in charge of that gate for making sure that uh, no invasion occurred. And again, we will fight the hardest uh, in defense of our own families. And so that was the idea behind that. You know, we, you go right around town and you see the neighborhood watch signs and we think, boy, that's just such a... We're, you know, we're just evolving so wonderfully as human beings to come up with this concept. It's so 3,000 years old, uh, somewhere in there. So the, this has been going on because the world has been what it has been uh, since the fall. And so uh, they kind of put all of this together. The city was large and it was spacious, but the people that were in it were few. And so very... A large city behind those walls. The houses were not rebuilt on the inside. And so this is the reason for kind of the extraordinary uh, security measures that uh, he, he, uh, he set up. He's going to solve all of this oh, in about chapter 11 or so, 10 or 11, on how to get this situation fixed. But in the meantime, this is the temporary fix. And then God put it on my heart 
to gather the nobles, the rulers, the peoples, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return uh, out of Babylonian captivity that we know was under Zerubbabel. And, and then he found the genealogy, and then that genealogy that's listed through the remainder of the chapter is virtually identical to the genealogy that's in Ezra chapter 2. So why include the genealogy at this particular point in, in time? To teach us how to pronounce Hebrew names, uh, to torture pastors in public and humiliate them? Is this what the reason is? No, the idea here is... He realizes that the city is, is underpopulated by Jews and that God has done an extraordinary thing here in bringing the people, uh, uh, Jerusalem coming largely back under the control of the Jews once again. And so what he wants to do is he wants to make sure that it is repopulated with those that are uh, truly Jews, pure, uh, those with a pure uh, Jewish descent. And so he goes back to the earlier genealogies where people's uh, Jewish descent had already been established just a few decades earlier and then, and then begins to work it from there. And so I won't read through all of that, but it's setting the stage for uh, what he's going to do a little bit later, and that is to take the general population of the Jews that were living away from Jerusalem and bring a tenth of them out of the countryside, out of the rest of the country, and make them inhabitants of the city to bolster uh, the population there. Verse 73 of chapter 8 continues us in uh, the chronology. And so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers... Uh, some of the people, the Nephinim and all Israel, dwelt in their city. So there's great accomplishment. The walls are built. The gates are in place. Now some structure and order has been put in place. And a lot of the people that were helping and building the walls, a lot of the Jews, they lived in surrounding villages, but they came over for the 50-plus days to help in all of it. Now everybody went back to their cities, and uh, it was a great accomplishment. And when the seventh month came, the, Jew, uh, the children of Israel were in their cities. And then here in uh, chapter 8, uh, a whole new kind of series of events occurs. It's interesting. Now all of the people gathered together as one man, we're told in chapter 1. What's, what we're going to see here in chapter 8 is just this spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. But it's going to happen among God's people. This is going to be birthed among the mere laity. This is a hunger of their heart. This is a desire of their heart. This great revival centered on the Word of God that's going to be described in Nehemiah chapter 8. There was no leader that God called out to put this whole thing together, to organize it. It's, a, it's very much an organism. People had a sense, the Jewish people had this sense that God sent the Jewish people under Zerubbabel from Babylonian captivity in order to rebuild the temple. It then sent another group of people uh, with Ezra, and Ezra given the responsibility of now establishing uh, the Jewish law in Jerusalem, that that would be, kind of become the law of the land after a long time related to the Jews. And then they recognize God sends this guy by the name of Nehemiah, and a wall gets built in 52 days or something like this, and they realize God is in, is 
showing us right before our very eyes that despite all of our sins, all of our failures, he is wanting to reestablish a Jewish presence in the city of Jerusalem. But they recognize that their greatest defense in doing that and their greatest hope of success was not in a physical wall that had been built. They realized to a person, again, organic, spontaneous within them. The wall is a great thing. But if we don't turn back to God, and if we don't turn back to His Word as the authority for our life, then we're just going to get eaten up and this great thing that God is doing is, is going to fall by the wayside. In other words, they looked and they said, we see what God is doing, but we recognize we have a responsibility in this as well. And they recognized that the greatest defense that God's people can have in the world, the greatest security that we can possess against our enemy in this world is to know the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. And that's the attitude that is behind their desire for a back-to-the-Bible revival that occurs in their midst in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so walls in that ancient world, they, they represented uh, protection, they represented separation. So it's all right, these physical walls have given us a physical protection and separation. But we recognize what's gotten us in trouble all through the ages was not that we lacked a physical separation or a physical protection from the nations around us. We lacked a spiritual separation and protection. We're going to go back to the Word of God. And the Word of God, obedience to the Word of God, puts a wall of separation around my life and a wall of protection around my life. And this is why, as it relates to the walls that a culture builds, in our culture, the United States of America, our walls, our laws, are based upon a Judeo-Christian ethic, the Bible. That's what they're based upon. And so, in the ancient world, in a physical sense, you would never tear down a physical wall until you asked around to find out, uh, why did they feel it necessary to build that wall in the beginning? What enemy was that wall built, intended to keep out? You'd never tear a wall down until you at least knew that. And And in the nation that we live in, The walls as it relates to the laws based upon God's word. I mean, we're all so smart. I mean, we're Americans in 2011. What does God know? We're so brilliant. We're tearing down one wall after another, after another, after another. Walls of separation and protection that have been built into our country based upon the word of God. And nobody is asking, why did they build that wall in the first place? And what does that wall protect us from? And what evil horde is going to have access to us if and when we tear that wall down? The arrogance and the pride of man, I say everyone, it's not everyone, but a a majority and a growing number of people. And any nation that takes anything of its society, its culture, its government that is 
based upon the word of God, even accidentally, and tears that down, is opening that nation up to an absolute invasion of evil morally and spiritually. And it's not just the United States of America, it's the West and much of the whole world is doing this in spades. And so look at the terrible consequence as a result of it. And so they recognize, and this is an important recognition for our own lives. We look and we say, well, we can pick on the United States of America. We can pick on this big government. It's so easy to pick on. We can pick on the Western world. We can pick on the whole world. What about our own individual lives? How important is obedience to the Word of God? Say, I'm going to disobey that commandment of God. You have no idea what gate you have opened up and what enemies are just sitting there waiting to come in if I'm dumb enough to open up the gate. And so it has an application individually related to our lives. So they recognized our strength is in our relationship with our God and our relationship with our God is only as healthy as our knowledge of the Word. Sometimes there's, um, I'll hear people, they'll talk uh, kind of in a disparaging way toward churches that emphasize the teaching of the Bible. And they'll say, oh, the, that group over there, I mean, they teach the Bible and they're so into the Bible and everything. They think the Bible's the fourth person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Bible. Don't ever say that to me unless I have just left my devotional life with God. There's hardly anything that irritates me more than that. And the reason is, is in the country that we live in, the United States of America, we are not in any danger of knowing our Bibles too much. That is not a problem we're facing at all. Just look at how rare a Sunday night service is in this city how rare it's become in the United States of America, how in churches that were built, the buildings that were built, the the dedication representing the dedication of the people, the commitment to God, built at times where there was a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service and a Wednesday evening service and a Wednesday evening prayer. And look how in one generation the movement away from the Word of God. We're not in any danger of of worshiping the Word of God. So it isn't this thing where it's like, okay, we're going to go back to the Word of God and everyone ought to have one of these and put it on their coffee table and then read it as a pure academic exercise. They wanted to go back to the Word of God because we have no greater revelation of our God and his nature, what he's like, who he is, his plans for us, than is found in the Word of God. So this wasn't an academic exercise on their part. It was a hunger for God. And where is the single greatest place that I can go to learn about God? Unfailingly accurate in its representation of God and his will, then it is the Word of God. And so this was the reason for it, out of their relationship with God and a desire to grow deeper in a relationship uh, with the Lord. And so the Word of God reveals the God of the Word. And so this is, they all gathered together as one man in an open square that was in front of the water gate. The water gate was one of uh, the gates that uh, led out of the city of Jerusalem. It's uh, absolutely... Uh, appropriate 
that all of this would take place in front of the water gate. And the water gate was called the water gate because it was the main gate that gave you access to the spring of Gihon, which was the main water source for the city of, of Jerusalem. And so this great revival centered on the word of God occurs here in the area of the water gate and uh, uh, beautiful the association of it with the word of God because one of the common symbols for the word of God in the New Testament is water, which speaks of the ability of the word of God to wash us and to cleanse us. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Paul writes of the power of the Word of God to wash in Ephesians chapter 5, instructing men, but it, it, it speaks to all of us with the washing of water by the Word. And so here's this great hunger that they have. They meet at the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, so this is a, this is a bottom-up movement, not a top-down movement. They told Ezra, the scribe, to... Bring the book. Boy, those are three words that are just beautiful to highlight in your Bible. Bring the book. That's what they wanted. Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And so they request this of Ezra. Couldn't get a finer choice in that day to come and teach you the word of God than Ezra the priest also Ezra the scribe knew the Bible inside and out, best teacher in Jerusalem at at that particular time. And the main thing, though, was not just that he was a priest, not just that he was a scribe, but that he lived a life of obedience to the Word of God. Ezra chapter 3, we read of him uh, some weeks ago. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so he was not only a speaker of God's word, but he also obeyed it. Now, Ezra, in, in terms of just putting things in, into our mind, Ezra was, as we see here, a contemporary of Nehemiah. And he had returned to Jerusalem 14 years before Nehemiah came uh, into Jerusalem. And he had also come with the blessing of Artaxerxes, again for the purpose of teaching the Jews uh, the word of God. And we know from the book of Ezra that his ministry of the word to the Jewish people was very, very powerful, was very, very strong. But perhaps up to this time, because of kind of the hostility of their enemies, uh, in and around Jerusalem, his ministry of the word might have been less a public one and maybe more focused in private envi- environments or teaching leaders in kind of private study. They want now that people come to him and they want the word of God to now be made public to everyone. And so when they call for the law of Moses, it refers to the first five books of the Bible, uh, also known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Again, that phrase, bring the book. That's always the beginning of something very, very good in the life of a child of God. Again, because the Bible is the revelation of God and revelation of his, his nature and his will. No one can come to know God at all, much less to know him deeply or to know him well, independent of the word of God. It takes the Word of God uh, to do that, which makes uh, biblical illiteracy uh, almost criminal. I cannot know God 
in the fullness with which he wants me to know him apart from knowing his Bible. And that means the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation as a Christian. I'm preaching to the choir. You're in a Sunday night service. Who's playing tonight? Don't answer. Don't tell me. You don't know. But you're here tonight. So I'm preaching to the choir on all of this. How many people, how many Christians do you know that know what the theme of Deuteronomy is? Or the theme of Genesis? How many of them know that Nehemiah is even about the building of a wall and what it symbolizes? Again, the move away from the Word of God. So I just, I just read the New Testament. I just read the red letters. I'm biting my tongue at the moment. I don't needlessly offend. That's so dumb. You say, what were you going to say? It's none of your business. (laughs) The volume of the book testifies of Christ. I remember being in a hospital here in this city. Woman in her late 70s. She's known God almost her whole life. 50 years anyway. And I'm talking with her there and this and that. And she said to me, she said, you know, she said that I never really came to know God until I started coming to Calvary Chapel. There's more to it than just that. He said, she said, and it was under the teaching of the Old Testament that my relationship with God opened up and exploded to life where she learned respect for God and reverence for God, for His holiness. How amazing it is to have a relationship with a God like this. And it was the Old Testament, in addition to the New Testament, that produced the revelation. We need to know the whole Bible. It's important for what it does in, in our lives. I also think it's very important to notice that they didn't want, they didn't call for Ezra or for Nehemiah to come and uh, give them their ideas or their opinions. As godly as they were, they wanted God's word. They didn't want the opinions of man. And I think that this certainly is a very, very strong rebuke to a practice that occurs, I don't say in strong Christian churches, but in enough Christian churches where somebody gets up in front in a pulpit like this and they read a scripture in order to uh, attach some legitimacy to what it is that they're going to say and the reading of that scripture, everything that uh, the scripture, after the scripture, the scripture is a point of departure and they just head into 40 minutes of their own opinions about everything in the whole wide world. And you just want to say, hey, listen. If they didn't want the opinions of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, what makes you think, I want your opinions this morning? When you've got 66 books of the most amazing book in the whole world to choose from and open up to me, I want your opinions? 
I want your philosophy. I want your viewpoints. I want the Bible. I want the Word of God. I want a revelation of God. I want to leave with wonder over the God that I love and the God that I'm serving. I think it's significant there as they asked for that. They came with just a simple request, teach us the Bible. Now listen, I'd love to have gotten kind of an EKG or whatever they do to just test the heart of Ezra when he heard that. You can't say better words to a Bible teacher than bring us the Bible. That excites us a lot. And so Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding, and he brought it on the first day of the seventh month. And so everyone came, men, women, men and women came, and then children that could understand the, what was being taught, so whatever that age might have been, they all gathered at that uh, particular time. The first month, when we're told that it occurred there in the first day of the seventh month, the wall had been completed on the 25th day of the sixth month, We know from chapter 6, and so this event took place just a few days after the completion of the wall. Now, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is a very, very exciting month, and they are heading into a very exciting month in terms of maximizing it for them. The Jews celebrated the Feast of Trumpets on the first day. They don't even know that it's the Feast of Trumpets. They're going to find out as they open up the Word of God what's going on around them. The Day of Atonement on the 10th day, the Feast of Tabernacles from the 15th day to the 21st day. And so this was just an absolutely perfect time for the nation to get right with the Lord and and make a fresh uh, beginning. And so everyone came together to hear the Word of God. And then he read it in the open square there in the area of the temple, that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday. So a period of like five or six hours. They stood and they listened to the Word of God being read. That's amazing. Now this is a place where, this is not a place to come in and say, Now hey, when's the last time that you stood for five or six hours to hear the Word of God? You call yourself a Christian. It wasn't that kind of a test. But it does speak to us of the hunger of the people for the Word of God. Ezra teaches the Word of God from a scroll. He may have had the only copy of the law in Jerusalem. Those people did not have a Bible at home. They did not have a scroll at home. They were hearing the Word of God taught in this kind of a measure, this kind of length, some of them for the first time in their life because of apostasy of the people. And so here they are without a Bible of their own to just be able to open up any time they want. Here they're getting to hear the Word of God spoken and for it to wash over them as a group of people. And so... He did it from the morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is significant. And, and what I'm going to say right now here, you're already flinching, is not 
defensive on my part. I'm, I'm acutely aware of my limitations as a Bible teacher. But here a group of people who were attentive to the law, the teaching of the book of the law. In other words, when they showed up to hear the word of God, they brought a want to to that. Now, one of the great things for me is when I was a new Christian, I was working for the phone company, and in those days they had mandatory overtime. When it rained, you just worked until all the work got done because lines were down and all kinds of different things. And in those days there were no uh, answering machines. I know you rest and relax over here. I know it's a world that you don't understand. You had to answer the phone. So you couldn't just click the thing on and then have it pick up. They, they knew where, where are you going to be at 3 in the morning when somebody hit a pole in the whole thing. They know you're there. Pick up that phone, Kyle! <laughs> so there were lots of times where I'd go to church and the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body is weak. I mean, you're just exhausted. And so I get all of that, and I understand where you come in, and here's somebody who in the fourth row falls. It's not a word. I'm not getting a word on it. Somebody in the fourth row falls asleep, you know, 15 minutes into things. It's just the way that it is. We all understand that. But it shouldn't happen every time. And I think that sometimes there's this attitude, not just in churches, but it's everywhere within the culture. But sometimes in the church where somebody can come in, somebody who knows better. I'm not talking about a non-Christian or someone who's a brand new Christian. They kind of can fold their arms and say, all right, buster, move me. And you better be good and better not have a slow moment in this sermon. Or, boy, I'm going to check out on it. Get on my phone or I'm going to, you know, write a list for what I'm going to do the rest of the week. <clears throat> And so there's, sometimes there's that kind of, <clears throat> of an ad, attitude related to it. You can't learn anything well in life that we don't bring a want to learn to the table. That's just the way that it is. I can't depend on anyone to provide me with the motivation to become anything I want to become in life. That has to happen inside of me and as it relates to this between God and myself. No one else can do that. And one of the things that I see today, and I don't want to pick overly on the rest of the body of Christ, because I, I know I'm a content guy. I know that about myself. You've been here two weeks. You know that about me. That's the most important thing to me. It's not that everybody have fun, that everybody stay awake, and, and, and did we set off fireworks at 20 minutes and at 40 minutes so everybody could stay awake on things. But I watched some of the most ridiculous things that are being done today on platforms and in order to try and deal with the severely short attention span of some Christians, especially carnal Christians. And again, I realize that not every part of the Bible or every subject is equally exciting or applicable to any of our lives, but it is the Word of God. So it deserves respect on the basis of that. I'm not, and I'm not preaching at you. I'm just talking out loud about these kind of, kind of things. And so what happens is, 
as there is less and less a realization among God's people that I got to bring a want to into that room and into that Bible study, then people don't bring it. And then the minister feels more and more compelled to hold on to everyone's attention. And so things that are done are even more silly and more stupid and more irreverent and just more goofy. And that's where it's going. And the solution is to come back and to realize that if I want to know this Bible, and if I don't want to know this Bible, it means I don't want to know the God of this Bible, which means there's big problems in my life. This is the way to know God. Can't know Him apart from this Bible. And, and so there, there has to be this thing where I come in and I say, all right, this is not getting my leftovers as a Christian. Doesn't mean that you're up all night with the kids the night before and on a given Sunday or Wednesday night or something that that's kind of what happens. But it isn't systematically or systemically that way but that there's a real motivation to learn the Word of God. I think you look in uh, what I assume is the case a little bit in public education where you have these absolute can-do kids coming from solid families and motivated families and involved families that drive home this point, you have to be motivated You've got to stay engaged. This is not just going to happen by osmosis. You have to learn. This is the standard for the family, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go into that place and they enter into those academic environments with that kind of an understanding. But then there's this whole group of people who walk into these environments and believe it is solely the purpose of public education and those teachers to teach them this subject even if they don't care one bit to listen. It's not going to happen. And then to blame the schools for failing them when they don't graduate or they graduate without being able to read. So this whole concept, this whole idea of bringing the want to to learning a subject, it's disappearing in the culture. But it's also disappearing among Christians as well. They were attentive to the book of the law. Everybody in the room is going, I'm not going to fall asleep. They're pinching right here. Is that the place where you keep yourself awake? You know? Your eyes are crossing, you know. (laughs) And so Ezra the scribe, he stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. I'm on a platform of wood up here. I feel very much like Ezra. So the purpose of the platform was, you got a lot of people out there, elevate them a little bit so everybody could see them, everybody could hear the word of God. And then besides him, at his right hand, stood These uh, gentlemen, all of them wonderful men with fabulous uh, names and uh, loved by their parents. And and so this was the, uh, they're up on the platform with him. And apparently these men were, uh, Nehemiah didn't do all of the reading for five or six hours straight. Uh, They apparently would spell him uh, in that as he oversaw the whole process. And Ezra opened up the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all of the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Again, everything in this whole chapter speaks to the respect of God's people for God's word. It's beautiful to see. And I really want it to challenge my heart. I'd love to see that in God's people. And I get to see it here 
on this passage. It's one of the reasons that on Sunday morning, when we're going to read the passage that we're going to read on Sunday mornings, and before we sit down to then study it, we stand while we read it. Just respect for God, respect for his word. And then Ezra blessed the people, or he blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all of the people answered, Amen, Amen, which means that's the truth, that's the truth, or so be it, so be it. And they did so while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, this is before they even, they even begin to study the Bible. Do you realize that it's a fabulous thing uh, and it, it, during the day when you've got your devotional life and you open up that Bible, it's, it's a great thing to just uh, open it up and then just with a sense. What they have here is they have a sense of privilege. We're going to open the Bible up. So before you begin your devotional life, you could just take an and open the Bible up, and you're just about to read it, and just dance around your study. I'm about to read the Word of God. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to study the Word of God. Maybe a little bit extreme. But there's, there is this excitement that they have over the Word of God, the sense of privilege. When I open the Bible up, it, it related to my own devotional life, I just say to the Lord regularly, I can't believe I own a copy of this. I can't believe that this is on my lap. I can't believe that you, the teacher, are with me and you're in me. I can't believe that I get to commune with you in this way through this great book. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to your book and to read it. And to have it do in my life supernaturally what it does. And that's the whole feel that they have related to the word of God. A sense of awe over all of it. And so this, this uh, respect for it, the excitement of it, they raised up, they lifted up their hands. They went all Pentecostal there. God bless them. And, of course, the lifting up of hands is what? The universal sign of surrender. It's like, God, before we even read the book, I surrender to whatever you say in it. I'm not going to read this book and then have you tell me something and then say, I'll obey it or I won't obey it at the moment. I tell you, Lord, that if you will be kind enough to give life to this book and open it up to me and speak to me about my life, that if you reveal anything in my life that you want to change before I even turn to it, I tell you, I commit to making that change before I even get into the Word. And then they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And that great uh, humbling themselves before the Lord. And then these group of men uh, uh, with the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So apparently what's happening here in all of this is that uh, Ezra would read the scriptures for maybe a section uh, that dealt with a particular issue, and then he would stop. And then these men would then go out in among the people and, and ask, is there any questions about this? Is there anything that, 
you're wondering about related to it, people would say, well, yes, how does that apply to this? Or what, what does that really mean here? And the, and the whole, and there would be that kind of interaction. They would help the people to understand it on kind of a one-on-one personal level. And then Ezra would go on to the next section. So you really have the, the best of the large group assembling together of the saints and the best of the small group dynamic. And so many of, of the groups within the church, I know that in the youth groups and then also in women's ministry, uh, uh, you have the large group uh, dynamic of things and then breaking into the smaller groups where the passages are then discussed. It's, this is the same kind of model. It's as old as the Old Testament. So how come we don't do that in this room? Well, notice in verse 8, now what we do is that's called home fellowships where on a Sunday morning there's the teaching of the Word of God. If you think I'm going to open up the floor to questions, you are crazy. You know, there's kind of a fad going on, and maybe it's like a long-term thing. I don't say fad in like a despising kind of way, where the guy is preaching the sermon, and then you can kind of text him your questions, and then he'll answer the questions at the end. And, uh, boy, those are very gifted people that are able... Uh, to do that. So um, maybe you could do it in a large assembly, but for us, the whole idea is is that there's the teaching of the Word of God and in the home fellowships, there is that asking on the smaller level and a quieter level, more personal level that can occur as we see uh, modeled here. And then in verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and they help them to understand the meeting. Now, the three things that happen here. When you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, you are probably reading the single greatest verse on teaching the Bible in the entire Old Testament. And it's made up of three characteristics. Number one, they read distinctly from the book and the law of God. Number two, they gave the sense... And then number three, they help them to understand the reading. And so I define it as R-E-A, not R-E-I, R-E-A, the reading of the Scriptures, the explaining of the Scriptures, and then the applying of the Scriptures. And that's what Bible teaching is. It is to read the passage, then to explain it. This is the context. This is what Paul was dealing with. This is the kind of person that this was addressed to, the circumstance, the situation, and then you apply it to our lives today. We face the same kind of situation today, and this is what God speaks to us today in this. That's all the Bible teaching is. It's that simple. Reading the passage, explaining the passage to the people, what's happening here, and then applying it to our personal lives that that we're living here in 2000. Um, 11. And so uh, the word of God was, uh, was, was given uh, here to them. That was, that's the, the teaching of it. The New Testament equivalent of Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 where Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, 
and to doctrine. Again, you have REA, a little different order though. But there's the reading of the scriptures, then the doctrine, the explaining of the passage, the instruction, the information, uh, the breakdown of the language a little bit is necessary, and then the exhortation, the application of, of the passage. I want, to, I want to speak on behalf of all Bible teachers, and I want to encourage all Bible teachers that are in the room here tonight. If I take the point that God is making in the passage, the whole reason the passage is in the Scriptures all together, and I explain how it, what that point is, and show why it comes out of the passage, and then explain how it applies to our lives, that is a successful service. That has been a very successful time in the Word of God, where the Word of God has been read to me, it's been explained to me, so I'm clear what God is saying there and how it applies to my life. That is Bible teaching. And when a Bible teacher does that, then he can know or she can know that they have done the greatest thing that a Bible teacher can do, and that is to help a person understand a passage of Scripture, walk out of a room or whatever setting it is, and for the rest of their life, that passage has become a friend to them. They know why that passage is in the Bible and how it applies to their life. You cannot, a Bible teacher with that gifting cannot make have a greater impact or make people richer than doing that. And I say that for two reasons. Number one is it relates to you and, and I as Christians in the room tonight. And I listen to a lot of Bible teaching just like you do as well. That is to be my expectation related to the Word of God. Not that someone is, has to motivate me not that somebody has to get me pumped up about God or, or anything like that, but that to know that if this person reads that passage, explains it, applies to my life, they have done what God has called them to do. And anything extra that I bring in terms of an expectation, that's my own expectation, and that may or may not happen. I say it for this reason as well. I, I say it to... All Bible teachers, but especially to younger Bible teachers, we have a sense that God has called you to do this. Today, I'm afraid that the ministry models, in every age there are always the superstars of Bible teaching. I don't care what the age is, it's just the way that it is. Where God gives a man an unbelievable gifting unbelievable supernatural insights into the Word of God and then just a, a charisma about their life, an ability to communicate that, that truth that just basically sweeps up the whole room and, and he takes them along with him, or she does as well in teaching women. But that kind of gifting, is, that's, that is the, on the rare side. It is a very small number of people who have that kind of, of a gifting and that kind of a calling. And then there's the rest of us. So what do we do? The problem today is, you know, a hundred years ago, 
You had these same kind of Bible teachers in churches and everything like that. But if they were in another part of the country or another part of the world, you didn't know anything about it. Because you couldn't stream the services live online or stream them later in the week. And so there wasn't this kind of pressure that would get put then on everyone. But today the pressure is great. And you get these this whole uh, thing where I think young Bible teachers can just feel this pressure of I've got to be some kind of a superstar. I've got to be some super charismatic person. What if you're not a super charismatic person? And then I'm going to present myself as a super charismatic person. But there's only one thing more painful than watching an uncharismatic person, and that is watching an uncharismatic person trying to be a charismatic person. You know what I'm saying? So we've got to be what we are. And so, but we, we can put this, these models are so big, they're so worldwide, they're in such headlines, everybody knows about them, and then I come and I'm going to teach the Bible, why don't they just go online and watch uh, whoever? And to just come in and say, listen, if you have a calling of God on your life to teach the Word of God, you just read that passage, explain that passage, and apply that passage. And we'll all grow in our gift. And that will have been a successful time in the Word of God. And I'll tell you something else. Anointing is everything. And when God calls you to do something, and we're all going to learn all the way to the end, He will add as much anointing as is necessary to the simplest things that we may be saying to give it the weight that He wants to give it. And so this whole complexity, how complex things have become and how complicated things have become, and it's really so simple. I think about Chuck Smith in this vein. Chuck tells a funny story. It's always dangerous to repeat somebody else's story. He's told it publicly a million times, so it's not like I'm gossiping or anything like that. He's early in his ministry. How many of you know who Chuck Smith is? Pastor Calvary Chapel. Okay, pretty well known. So, Pastor Chuck, kind of early in his ministry, he's, uh, if you've ever watched him, he's like this. He just locks onto both sides of the pulpit. And here's the extent of how dynamic his movement becomes. And he's a content guy. But he speaks that content with such authority that you would think that as he takes the simplest truth of the Word of God, when he delivers it, you would think that's the most important truth in the whole wide world. Because the anointing that's on his life. And you look at the whole Calvary Chapel thing that has come out of God's calling on... Pastor Chuck's life. There's just 1,400, 1,600 churches around the United States and around the world. And God chose to use a man like that. There are teachers in the Calvary Chapel movement that are so dynamic, so outrageously, and so unfairly good (laughs) and great in their teaching. But if they had been the start of the movement, 
The rest of us, as new Christians, would have watched them So I could never do that. Our hearts would have sunk and said, I, that is not in me. But we watched Chuck, where he would read and explain and apply the Scriptures. And the whole authority, the whole weight, the whole power of it was the Holy Spirit on the Word of God. And then 1,400, 1,600, how many more missionaries around the world thought, you know, I think maybe I could do that. At least try it and see what God does. And it gave hope to a whole generation, still gives hope to new generations to do that. And Chuck modeled that, and God honored that. The REA of Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. And so here was the teaching of the Word of God, and, I, and we're not going to move past verse 8. We'll stop there and, and go into verse 9 uh, next time. But I just. Want to also make one more point related to the Word of God and our, our own growth in the Word of God. I don't want to pick on anybody else. I don't want to put anybody else down. I don't want to have think, yeah, boy, you know, those guys or any of that kind of thing. But there's a world of difference between teaching from the Bible and teaching the whole Bible. You have topical messages where we're going to talk about fear, we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about marriage. And you can do a, a whole series of, say, seven messages on a particular topic. That's great in its own place. You have what's known as a textual message, where somebody takes some grouping of verses that contain, like, a thought in a presentation from God, maybe、uh, three verses out of Philippians chapter 3, and then the next week a psalm. And then the next week, something out of the life of Christ. And the next week, one of the seven churches in Revelation. And you're moving around. And it is very interesting because you look at the pastor and you have no idea where he's going to go next on the next given Sunday. What in the world is he going to talk about next? All over the different places. And as wonderful as that is, it's not the superior way of learning the Bible. Because what can happen is, after five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, forty years, You can come away and at the end of all of it say, I know an awful lot of wonderful truth from the Word of God. I know, I know about every、uh, popular or well known passage in the entire Old Testament and New Testament, but I don't know the Bible. I don't know what Genesis is about as a whole. I don't know what Isaiah is about as a whole. I know what the five most famous verses in Isaiah are about, but I don't know what the book means at all. And there's a world of difference between the two. And here you have being modeled in、uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, what is called expository teaching, basically what we're doing on the Sunday night, and just heading all the way through it so that. I know what this book of the Bible is about, and I understand what its meaning is and how it applies to my life. The whole book of the Bible, and not just a few verses out of that book of the Bible. And so at the end of that, then, the Bible becomes my friend, so that I could end up on a deserted island and not need anybody to teach me.
because I know the Bible for myself rather than a bunch of scattered wonderful verses throughout the Bible. And they are in two entirely different qualities of knowing the Bible. And here is the exposition teaching and the importance, the value of going right through a book or right through the Bible itself, which is the reason that we do it on the Sunday nights. And so it's dying away in terms of what's happening in our country and, you know, kind of professing Christianity. But it, it, just because it's not popular at the moment or heavily practiced at the moment, relatively speaking, doesn't mean that it isn't the best way to learn the Scriptures. And so verse 8 to me is just a fabulous, fabulous encouragement to Bible teachers, and not only to Bible teachers, but to all of us who listen to Bible teaching as well, so that we know, hey, this is the expectation I can bring into this room related to that one that's going to be teaching the youth or related to the one that's going to be teaching in the women's ministry or the men's or in the sanctuary or wherever it might be here within the church. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we give you praise for your word. Not just words that are printed on a page, but the revelation of your Holy Spirit concerning yourself, concerning your wisdom, Lord, in your ways, concerning your nature and your heart toward us and your thinking, and on and on and on it goes. Lord, we love our Bibles because we love how they teach us about you. And we thank you, Lord, for this great revival, this great back-to-the-Bible movement that occurred in the hearts of these people as they recognized their need for the Scriptures. And we thank you, Lord, for being able to partake, kind of just glom on to this tonight and just experience it from this separation of 2,000-plus years, but just to enjoy it, Lord, as it instructs us and as it encourages us. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the time that we get to spend in it this evening. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.